Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, The Ghost of Homophobia Past. This episode is being recorded in my underground bunker on the night of December 14th, 2017, two days ago on December 12th. Mormon Leaks released a document of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This document is titled Homosexuality and it is dated back to 1981. The contents of this document and the attitudes expressed in it and endorsed in this official publication of the Church are, to put it mildly, primeval. The release of this document has already started to cause a buzz among the media. In fact, the website for Newsweek has already published an article on it, and more articles will probably be forthcoming in other media venues. Now, how is it, you might ask, could a document that is 36 years old cause a public stir among the media and among Mormonism? Well, the first thing has to do with the contents of the document. I'll be going over the document in a little more detail here presently, but... In synopsis, the document first off says unequivocally that homosexuality is something that is a choice. You are not born with it. It can be changed. It should be changed. It must be changed if a person is going to be exalted in the celestial kingdom. And in fact, it sets forth a method for changing it and how church leaders can help people who suffer from this problem, as it's called in the document. And it sets forth methods that church leaders can use to help people who suffer with this problem of homosexuality overcome it, change their ways, become heterosexual, and live happy, fulfilling, and productive lives. Not only that, it sets forth the reasons that people end up becoming homosexual. Actually, it doesn't say you become homosexual. It says you should not label people as homosexual. You should say that they suffer from homosexuality because simply calling them homosexual can make it more difficult for them to not be homosexual. Some of the reasons that cause homosexuality are, in brief, a bad childhood. You could either be too lonely, you could have a father who is too absent, you could have a father who is too much present and is domineering and controlling and not loving enough, or in the case of having a father who is absent, you can have a mother who is domineering and controlling. And interestingly, one of the main causes, as listed in this document, for homosexuality is masturbation. That's right masturbation will make you gay. If you don't want to turn out gay, no spanking the monkey. Okay? We mean it. So having given a brief overview of what's contained in this document, why is it that this is causing such a stir now 36 years after it was originally produced? Aren't we past that? Haven't we changed our position? Haven't we become more modernized by this point? Well, I think the reason for the fact that this is causing such a stir and so much controversy upon its release two days ago is because of two things. The first has to do with the love of secrecy in the LDS church, and the second has to do with the church's complete inability and unwillingness to ever come out and publicly reject, discount, and disavow positions that the church has held previously. In other words, at no time in the intervening 36 years since this document was originally produced in 1981, Has the church ever come out and said, we said that back then, we were wrong, we apologize, and now we know better, there's better science on the subject, and we are going to modify our views to keep up with the times. Going back to the secrecy aspect, I want to mention 
what it is this document looks like. You can find it on the Mormon Leaks website. It is nine pages long. It is eight and a half by 11 inches. And along the left side are three punch holes suitable to being placed in the notebook manual that local leaders used to have back in 1981. The contents of the document itself seem to make it clear that this was meant for state presidents, for bishops, for branch presidents, and for other priesthood leaders in order to help them help people who suffered from homosexuality. It is not a document that was made public to members of the church. If it had been made available to members of the church in general, Mormon leaks would not have been able to leak it, thereby causing a stir. This is the penchant for secrecy that I'm talking about. This is distributed only to local leaders of the church. It is unknown when this document went out of circulation, but it is my understanding that when such documents do go out of circulation, a memo is sent from Salt Lake advising all the local leaders to take these documents that are no longer in circulation out of the notebook and then personally destroy them so that they may not be circulated or leaked by Mormon leaks 36 years later. Interestingly, there is only one other copy of this document that is known to be in existence, and that is at the BYU Library. If you go onto the BYU Library website, and a link to this is provided on the Mormon Leaks webpage, you will find that this document is available at the BYU Library. However, it is in the Special Collections section of the BYU Library. There is one copy that is present, and it is for on-site use only. It may not be checked out of the library. So even though there is one copy there, it is still being closely held. On the very first page of this leadership handbook supplement is the title Homosexuality. And immediately under that, it says Second Edition. So even though this is from 1981, it appears that there was another edition that was in existence in the leadership manuals prior to this. How long prior to this, we cannot tell from this information. Going back to the BYU library page dealing with this document, we find that the creation date was 1981. It is the second edition and a general note is included that says, quote, extensive revision from the first edition. Now it doesn't tell us what those extensive revisions are, only that extensive revisions were made. And when we consider how archaic and primeval the contents of the second edition are, one can only wonder how bad the first edition was before the extensive revisions were made. Going down to the bottom of the first page, it says, Published by the First Presidency and the Council of the Twelve Apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So it's very hard for the church to avoid taking responsibility for the contents of this leadership manual supplement. On page two of the document, we find that it was copyrighted in 1981 by the Corporation of the President of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And then on page three, we have a table of contents to the nine-page document. I want to go back to the reason that this is giving the church a black eye. Once again, a well-deserved black eye. It's because of these twin concepts of secrecy and the church refusing to come out and publicly disavow and repudiate prior positions. I think it's pretty clear why it is that the church does not come out and publicly repudiate prior positions on doctrinal matters, and indeed, their position on homosexuality was considered doctrinal in this publication. It's considered doctrinal today. Elder Oaks just got done telling us in the last general conference in October that the statements in the proclamation on the family relating to homosexuality are not only doctrinal, they're also revelation. But the reason the church doesn't want to come out and do that is because of the framework of the church which is based upon being led by prophets of God 
who are doctrinally inerrant. They cannot make mistakes about doctrine, because if the church admits that prophets in the past have made mistakes about doctrine, then it undermines the entire foundation of the church. If prior prophets were wrong about doctrinal matters, then who is to say that current prophets are not wrong about doctrinal matters? This comes into sharp relief when the teachings of prior prophets contradict the teachings of current prophets. When such teachings contradict, one or the other has to be correct. Or they could both be wrong. The one thing they cannot be is both being correct together. One of them has to be wrong. And therefore, the church never wants to come out and say publicly, that prophet before got it wrong. Even in a situation where it is so obvious that prior prophets got it wrong, as in the priesthood ban on blacks, the church in its essay on the subject still cannot bring itself to actually come out and say they got it wrong. They still want to leave room there for members to believe that actually this is what God wanted and then God just changed his mind. That we don't know why God did this in the first place and we don't know why he changed his mind, but they still want to leave room for people to believe, yes, God is in control. God is directing the church through his prophets and God had the priesthood ban on blacks in place because that's what God wanted. And then in 1978, God changed his mind and said, blacks can have the priesthood now. So what the church does when it wants to repudiate a prior doctrine or move away from it or start changing the doctrine is they just don't talk about the prior doctrine. They start changing their message and without ever coming out and saying, hey, that prior thing that was said, that was wrong. They just don't talk about it. They don't emphasize it. They start talking about other things instead and hope that nobody will ever look at those prior statements that nobody will ever find this 1981 priesthood manual supplement on homosexuality, and they can just go on their merry way and hope that no one notices. And I think that President Gordon B. Hinckley tipped his hand to this process in his famous Time cover story when he was interviewed by Richard Osling from Time magazine. You'll remember this. This is the famous quote where he was asked whether the LDS Church holds and believes that God the Father was once a man. Gordon B. Hinckley sounds uncertain. What Gordon B. Hinckley said was, I don't know that we teach it. I don't know that we emphasize it. It's a strange use of words for Gordon B. Hinckley to be using in order to try and dodge this question. It's obvious he's trying to dodge the question. But why does he say, I don't know that we emphasize it? Because this is the policy of the LDS Church. When it doesn't want to talk about something anymore, when it wants it to go away, they just don't emphasize it. And I think that's what Gordon B. Hinckley meant when he said, I don't know that we emphasize it. Another classic case of a doctrine that church leaders wanted to go away and therefore they stopped emphasizing it or talking about it was the Adam-God theory of Brigham Young. Brigham Young taught that Adam was God. A lot of people believed him because he was the prophet. He's the one who speaks for God. If he says it, it must be true. So after Brigham Young died, the church made a decision. We don't really like the Adam-God theory. It's causing us too much trouble and therefore we're going to shift away from that. And the way they did it was by avoiding it, by not bringing it up, by not emphasizing it. Here is a quote from Apostle Franklin D. Richards in 1897 regarding the Adam-God theory. This is what he said, quote, The council, and that's the Quorum of the Twelve, the council did not deem it wise to lay out a line of procedure in which to deal with the subject, that subject being the Adam-God theory, but felt that it is best to avoid bringing it up and to do the best we can, and as the Spirit may suggest, when it is thrust upon us. This statement by Franklin D. Richards in 1897 appears to continue to be the policy of the church today when dealing with subjects 
that it wants to not talk about. They don't come out and repudiate it. They simply start changing the message, moving away from the message, and hope that nobody else brings it up. But if somebody else does bring it up, then they have to do the best we can, and as the Spirit may suggest, when it is thrust upon us. Well, we'll see what this church does now that this 1981 Priesthood Manual Supplement has been thrust upon them. But these two ideas of secrecy and refusal to repudiate past doctrines is what lays the groundwork for so many of the problems the church is having. If the church had simply not been so secret about this priesthood manual insert and made it public, then releasing it now in 2017 would not cause a ripple. And if the church had publicly repudiated the doctrines and the positions in this 1981 document, then there would be no news story. This is similar to what happened back in February of 2012 with Professor Randy Bott of Brigham Young University. You may remember Randy Bott. That's B-O-T-T. He was a professor of religion at BYU, and I stress was a professor because he's no longer a professor there. And the reason why is because of what happened in February of 2012. What happened was that the Washington Post was doing a story about Mitt Romney and they wanted to find out the history of the church in relation to the priesthood ban. So what they did was they went to Randy Bott. He's a BYU professor. He had been there for quite a long time. He's not just any professor. He was actually rated as the most popular professor, not just at BYU, but in the entire country, at least according to a website called RateMyProfessor.com and the rankings of that website for 2008. He was the highest rated professor in America. He taught large sections of required religion courses, including courses designed to prepare future missionaries to as many as 3,000 students a year. And what the Washington Post did was they went to him for an interview. Randy Bott agreed to the interview. And the huge mistake that Randy Bott made was telling the Washington Post the truth about the church's position on the priesthood ban. Professor Bott trotted out the standard doctrines in the church at the time that the reason that blacks could not hold the priesthood was because of the curse of Cain, which involved a black skin, and also talked about the fact that in the pre-mortal existence, certain people had been less valiant in the war in heaven, and those people were born black. And because of their lack of valiancy in the pre-mortal existence, they were cursed from the priesthood. It's stuff that anybody who's been a member of the church for any amount of time has heard dozens of times. So there's nothing that's really a surprise to what it is that Randy Bott said. It's simply that he said it publicly, and that caused a problem. You will remember that Mitt Romney was running for president. This was the Mormon moment. The Mormon church is trying to put its best foot forward, and here comes Randy Bott telling the truth about what Mormonism is taught, about why it is that blacks cannot hold the priesthood. But unfortunately, he went further and gave an analogy, which is something that I have heard before, and probably you have heard before. Here's what Professor Bott said to the Washington Post and what they published in their article. God has always been discriminatory when it comes to whom he grants the authority of the priesthood. Professor Bott compared blacks with a young child prematurely asking for the keys to her father's car and explains that similarly, until 1978, the Lord determined that blacks were not yet ready for the priesthood. Here's what he says. What is discrimination? Bott asks. I think that is keeping something from somebody that would be a benefit for them, right? Professor Bott goes on. But what if it wouldn't have been a benefit to them? Professor Bott said that the denial of the priesthood to blacks on earth, although not in the afterlife, protected them from the lowest rungs of hell reserved for people who abuse their priesthood powers. Professor Bott said, quote, You couldn't fall off the top of the ladder because you weren't on the top of the ladder. So in reality... The blacks not having the priesthood was the greatest blessing 
God could give them. Unquote. You see, it's not discriminating if you're trying to keep people from going to hell because they're not ready to have the priesthood because that would be like giving a 12-year-old kid the keys to the car and saying, go out and have a good time. Well, this caused a great deal of controversy by the church, and shortly after this Washington Post story appeared, the church came out with a public statement denouncing Randy Bott, denouncing what he said, saying the church is against any kind of discrimination and any kind of racism, while at the same time admitting that there had been a period for, well, let's see, over a century when blacks couldn't hold the priesthood in the church, and then in the official statement, the church said, well, we're really not sure why that is, but whatever it is that Randy Bott said, we reject that, we denounce that. The one thing the church did not say in its official statement was that Randy Bott was just teaching the things that the church had been teaching for over a hundred years. The church was embarrassed that Randy Bott was publicly quoted as teaching what the church had taught for over a hundred years, and therefore they decided to make an example of him, denounce what he said, and try and make it appear that really he wasn't teaching what the church had been teaching for over a hundred years. And the end of the story is that the following month, in March of 2012, it was announced that Professor Bott would be leaving his teaching post at BYU to serve as a senior missionary with his wife, perhaps somewhere in Outer Mongolia. The problem is, is that Randy Bott did not get the memo that he wasn't supposed to be teaching this anymore. And the reason he didn't get the memo is because there was no memo sent. At no point did the church come out and publicly repudiate these doctrines. At no point in general conference did a church leader come out and say, these things were taught, these things are not true, we reject them, we repudiate them. And the reason they didn't do it is because they can't have prior prophets contradicting current prophets. That's not a place they want to go because of the damage it does to the structure of the church as having prophets that are doctrinally infallible. So, let's go back to this document now. I want to go over it very quickly and point out some of the highlights. And you will quickly see why it is that this is deemed somewhat controversial. Secrecy, plus the failure of the church to repudiate these doctrines publicly, plus the fact that pretty much everything that's said in this document is very different from what the world believes today, and some of it is different from what the church would like the world to believe that the church believes today. In the foreword, it makes it clear that this is for church leaders. It says, this booklet contains information to help church leaders understand and treat the problem of homosexuality. It is provided for stake presidents, bishops, mission presidents, branch presidents, quorum leaders, and others assigned to help individuals with this problem. So it's pretty clear that this had a limited distribution to priesthood leaders in the church. Homosexuality is of grave concern to the church because of a number of reasons. Number five is very interesting because it may involve violent or criminal behavior. So the position of the church at the time was that homosexuality may involve violent or criminal behavior, apparently more than heterosexuality. Members of the church who engage in homosexual behavior need the help of an inspired priesthood leader. They must accept responsibility for their sinful behavior and develop the determination to change their lives. The document goes on on page one, an overview of homosexuality, in which it says sexual misbehavior, which is what homosexuality is, of course, Sexual misbehavior, however, is almost always a symptom of serious social or emotional problems. So homosexuals are almost always that way because they have social problems or because they have emotional problems. And they'll go on to describe exactly what those problems are later on in the document. The position of the church on homosexuality. Now it quotes from a first presidency statement. It's not clear exactly when this first presidency statement was given. There is no citation to it, but obviously it was before 1981. And once again, here we get to the problem. We're quoting from 
the first presidency. If we're going to change the position of the church and make it different from what the first presidency said prior to 1981, we're going to have a problem with dueling prophets. Now, here's what it says. The first presidency has issued the following statement to priesthood leaders. So perhaps this was a letter from the first presidency to bishops, state presidents, and branch presidents. Quoting from this letter, as we have previously stated, this is the first presidency speaking, homosexuality is a sin in the same degree as adultery and fornication. Powerful forces are seeking to establish this sinful practice as an acceptable way of life. It goes on to say, some claim homosexuality is incurable. Therefore, they seek to be considered a legitimate minority group protected by law. And then says, we should not be deceived by these false rationalizations. So anybody who says that homosexuality is incurable, in other words, it's the way they were born, in other words, it's the way they are, that is a false rationalization according to the First Presidency. The document goes on to talk about the causes of homosexuality behavior. Here's where it gets interesting. Not only are they going to quote from official and authoritative church sources, they are also going to try and enlist scientific and professional consensus. They're not going to cite to any professional and scientific studies, but what they're going to say is this, professionals do not agree on the causes of homosexual behavior. Okay, that was true. However, most professional research supports the view that homosexual behavior is learned and is influenced by unhealthy emotional development in early childhood. Well, I'm sure there were some professionals who believed that at the time. I don't know that it was most professional research. It's obviously the research that was relied upon by the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve when they produced this document and or approved it for publication. But it's obvious that the professional research has changed drastically in the last 36 years. And here's the problem. What if every single professional in the world held this opinion back in 1981 that homosexuality is a learned behavior and influenced by unhealthy emotional development in early childhood. If every single professional in the world held that position, isn't this church led by prophets, seers, and revelators? And why are they relying on what other professionals say when they have a direct pipeline to God, they receive revelation from God in order to establish church doctrine and church policy? And if that were true, they should have had the right answer back then regardless of what any professionals did or did not say. Now they start listing the different causes of homosexual behavior. Number one, a disturbed family background. Many times the father is either physically or emotionally uninvolved in his child's life or is punishing and authoritarian. So either the father is too hot or too cold. The father needs to be just right in order to avoid raising a boy who turns out to be a homosexual. Another cause is the mother usually attempts to fill the physical and emotional void left by the father. Some mothers are overprotective and dominant. So if you've got a dad who's not there and the mother seeks to take his place by being overprotective and dominant, that can cause homosexuality too. Another problem with the family background can be because of inadequate parental examples in the home, the child does not learn proper masculine, if it's a boy, and feminine, if it's a girl, behavior. So if the father is not suitably masculine, the boy could end up being homosexual. If the mother is not, su if the mother is not suitably feminine, a daughter could end up being 
homosexual. Another thing that can cause homosexuality, not just a disturbed family background, but also poor relationship with peers. Under this subheading, the individual often uses homosexual behavior as a way to gain acceptance. Well, apparently that would be only with other homosexuals. Because he needs warmth and love, he is attracted by the apparent acceptance of others who engage in homosexual activities. So if a child feels unloved, that's also something that can lead to homosexuality because he wants to feel loved. Homosexuals offer love and therefore he can flip the switch, go from being straight to being gay in order to be accepted. Number three, subheading number three, unhealthy sexual attitudes. The individual's parents may view sexual expression as something which is improper or even dirty. They may pass this attitude on to their children. Now this is an interesting thing coming from an LDS publication which really does do quite a bit to make sexuality appear something that's dirty. Have you ever heard of chewed gum? Have you ever heard of licked cupcakes? But no, this is something that parents might do inadvertently. The church doesn't do it. So if children think that heterosexuality is dirty, then they're going to think that homosexuality is not dirty. That appears to be the line of reasoning here. Oh, and here it says some young people may misinterpret church emphasis on premarital chastity, completely avoiding heterosexual interests or relationships. So right, all the stories about the chewed gum, all the stories about the licked cupcakes, that's a misinterpretation of the church's emphasis on premarital chastity. Going back to the mother, the mother may place too much importance on a strong emotional attachment between herself and her son as a result of her efforts to fill the emotional void left by the father. And the mother may discourage her son's interest in girls. So once again, putting it back on the mother. And this appears to be primarily for single moms or mothers whose husbands are largely absent. Now we get to early homosexual experiences. Early homosexual experiences can lead to homosexuality. Who would have thought that? And under this subheading, early masturbation experiences introduce the individual to sexual thoughts which may become habit-forming and reinforcing to homosexual interests. This is the first mention, we're on page two of the document now, of masturbation and the fact that masturbation can cause people to become gay. The document now goes on to talk about rationalization and how it is that people can rationalize that homosexuality is okay. Under this subheading, we have the following. They claim the authority, in other words, homosexuals, may claim the authority of scientific research. Well, wait a second here. I thought on page one it said that most professional research supports the view of the church. Now it says that some homosexuals may claim the authority of scientific research. I guess that would be the research that doesn't support the position of the church. And have taken the position that, number one, they are not responsible for their homosexual behavior because it is caused by conditions beyond their own control, such as biological or environmental factors. Isn't it amazing to be reading this from this 1981 document in light of the strides that have been made in understanding homosexuality in 2017. The overwhelming scientific consensus is that people are born that way, just as heterosexuals are born heterosexual. Now, there may be some exceptions on both sides of the aisle, but I think that the predominant vast majority of researchers and professionals agree that the vast majority of heterosexuals are heterosexual because they were born that way and the vast majority of homosexuals are homosexual because they were born that way. Another rationalization in the document is that homosexuals may think that the course of homosexuality once entered is irreversible 
and incurable. They keep talking about it as being incurable as if it is a disease, which is the way they treat it in this document. It is a disease. It is a problem. It is something that needs to be overcome and can be overcome. And the third rationalization is that homosexuality is a harmless alternative lifestyle. I'm not exactly sure who it harms. They don't really say in here. But this is a rationalization, as they put it. Homosexuality is a harmless alternative lifestyle, and any legal or religious prohibition is a fundamental denial of human rights. Well, that sounds like what our United States Supreme Court said in 2015. Now, if the church in this document had only said the opposite of what they're saying, that homosexuality is a harmless alternative lifestyle, and any legal or religious prohibition is a fundamental denial of human rights, then they would have been ahead of the curve. Instead of calling this a rationalization, they could have called this a declaration. They could have called it a proclamation. And then the LDS Church might actually have been ahead of the curve on this social issue instead of decades behind this social issue, which is what the LDS Church has an established track record of being decades behind on every social issue. The next subsection is counteracting these rationalizations. The church's unequivocal position is that any rationalization of homosexuality is wrong. Homosexuality is a sin. Inspired prophets, once again, they're going to inspired prophets now to state this doctrine, which is why they can't come out and just openly reject it, even though if they did, it would save them a lot of headaches. Inspired prophets have taught throughout the ages that homosexuality is a sin. As such, it can be forsaken and following repentance can be completely forgiven. The document goes on. Homosexual behavior is learned and can be overcome. To believe that immoral behavior is inborn or hereditary is to deny that men have agency to choose between sin and and righteousness. Now here's where the church decides to engage in theologizing. What they're going to do is they are going to theologize their way that homosexuality cannot be inborn, it must be a choice. And here's how they get there. They start with the premise that homosexuality is a sin. If God punished someone for a sin that wasn't a choice, that would make God unfair and unjust. God is neither unfair nor unjust. Therefore, he would not punish someone for something that was not a choice. Therefore, homosexuality cannot be inborn and it must be a choice. This is the problem of doing theology and trying to come to conclusions in other fields such as science, biology, or genetics. You are very likely going to get it wrong as they did here. Again, it states, to believe that immoral behavior, and they're talking about homosexuality in case you didn't know, to believe that immoral behavior is inborn or hereditary is to deny that men have agency to choose between sin and righteousness. The Lord has given man the freedom to make moral choices, and this agency is the cornerstone of his plan for exaltation. So the problem is now, if homosexuality is not a choice, then the cornerstone of the plan of exaltation crumbles. He has revealed, he, God, has revealed that the ultimate goal for man is eternal life. It is inconceivable. Yes, they use the word inconceivable. I don't think that word means what you think it means. It is inconceivable that as some involved in homosexual behavior claim, he, God, would permit some of his children to be born with desires and inclinations which would require behavior contrary to the eternal plan. So there is the theological justification 
for the church's position that homosexuality cannot be inborn and it must be a choice. And this last part of the statement in this document sounds very much like what Boyd K. Packer said a few conferences ago in talking about homosexuality and apparently ad-libbing the comment, why would a loving Heavenly Father do something like that? Why would a loving Heavenly Father have his children born with homosexual attraction? He wouldn't do that because he loves us and therefore it must be a choice. That's the point of that document's argument and that was the point of the statement that Boyd K. Packer made much more recently. As you will recall, that statement raised a little bit of a fuss and it ended up being deleted from the printed version of his conference talk. The document goes on on page 3, assessing the members' needs, because this is for priesthood leaders and they're supposed to assess the members' needs. There's a lot of talk in here about having meetings with the member, about talking with them, about having repeated conferences with them regarding their process to shed themselves of their homosexuality. It states here, many many individuals, however, have successfully overcome this problem, and the following suggestions will help you counsel those who are working to overcome it. Now, I really doubt that any members have successfully or did successfully overcome the problem, quote-unquote, of homosexuality but rather they pretended that they had and later on it blew up on them and they had to come out of the closet after they gotten married and had several children or they took that secret to their grave after living a completely unfulfilling and miserable existence. But nevertheless, they want to give encouragement and hope that homosexuals can change. Therefore, they are going to say that many individuals have successfully overcome this problem and at the end of this document, they're going to give several testimonies from people, formerly homosexual, who are now saying, dang it, I overcame it and I prayed the gay away. So you can too. It then goes on to give categories of homosexual behavior. There are three categories. One is early memory, two is situational homosexuality, and three is rebellious homosexuality. The first one, called early memory homosexuality, involves people who have had persistent homosexual feelings or behaviors since his earliest memories. Well, mm, that kind of sounds like they were born with it. But that's what they call early memory homosexuality. Typically, he comes from a family which has had serious social-emotional problems. Usually, his relationship with his father is poor or non-existent. He generally has limited social skills and may be confused about proper male and female behavior. He usually fears the opposite sex and is afraid of close emotional ties with anyone. This kind of person may require one to three years of regular counseling with a priesthood leader. Category two is situational homosexuality. Individuals in this category include those who experience occasional, temporary homosexual feelings or behaviors through curiosity, experimentation, pornographic stimulation, peer pressures, drug or alcohol abuse, or living in close proximity to a member of the same sex. Wait a second. Or living in close proximity to a member of the same sex. What is a mission about if it's not living in close proximity to a member of the same sex? For two entire years, you are required by the church to live in close proximity to a member of the same sex. But this document does not seem to appreciate the irony involved in that statement. Now, their family background, the people who suffer from Category 2 situational homosexuality, their family background is often quite normal with no unusual family problems. Okay, now, hang on a second here. So, people can be homosexual if they come from a family that has serious emotional and social problems, 
and people can be homosexual if they come from a family background which is quite normal with no unusual family problems. So it sounds to me like homosexuality has nothing to do with your family. Your family can have bad problems, your family can have no problems, and you can still be homosexual. So even within this document itself, it is internally inconsistent. They may be active in the church, but often lack deep spiritual understanding and conviction, because obviously if they had deep spiritual understanding and conviction, they wouldn't be homosexual. For people in Category 2, professional assistance may be helpful, but it's not always necessary. Category 3, rebellious homosexuality. These people have chosen to fully accept a homosexual lifestyle. They commonly manipulate others to meet their own sexual needs. Wow! Rebellious homosexuals manipulate others to meet their sexual needs? Well, I'm glad that doesn't apply to heterosexuals. I've never heard of a heterosexual manipulating somebody else to meet their sexual needs. This document has a lot of good information in it. Generally, they are not active in the church. They tend to rationalize and interpret doctrines or scriptures for their own purpose and try to refute the position of the church on homosexuality. How interesting that so many of the positions in this 1981 document have been tacitly refuted by the current church in 2017. And yet that is one of the descriptions of a Category 3 rebellious homosexuality is that they will try to refute the position of the church on homosexuality. Because these individuals have a rebellious attitude, you may need to reprove them with sharpness, as the Spirit directs, and teach gospel principles in plainness. But basically, they're not holding out much hope for these people in Category 3. They need to understand the seriousness of their sins and the hope of forgiveness. Professional or ecclesiastical counseling will help only when the individual begins to develop a desire to change. The next subsection is the member's attitude, which means the homosexual member's attitude. Probably the most crucial single factor in the rehabilitation of a member with homosexual problems is his attitude. When he is willing to solve the problem in the Lord's way, with a priesthood leader's counsel and direction, he can change. Now, one of the great problems with this is not only that they cannot change, but that changing is held out as being the ideal. Changing is held out not only as a possibility, but as something that should be done. And I don't even want to think about all the despair, all the shame, all the humiliation, and all the suicidal ideation that has been caused in the LDS Church by the idea that homosexuality is a choice, homosexuals can change their sexual orientation, and in fact, they should do so and must do so if they are going to be exalted, if they're going to be accepted by Jesus Christ, if God will approve of them and their course of conduct. The next subsection is providing professional assistance because professional assistance may be necessary when the individual has serious mental or emotional problems, which apparently is what they're calling homosexuality. You may also wish to involve professional help. You can call the LDS Social Services, who can offer treatment suggestions and even provide therapy for the member as a supplement to your own counseling. Where this agency is unavailable, you can obtain additional information by writing to LDS Social Services. But, and this is important, when you consider involving non-LDS professionals, you almost know what's going to come after this comma, don't you? You should be careful to make sure they understand and support gospel principles relating to homosexual behavior. So you don't want to make a mistake and send a homosexual Mormon to a professional psychologist or psychiatrist who thinks maybe being homosexual is not a horrible thing. Any professionals have to have the church's position that homosexuality is not inborn, it is a choice, and it can be changed, and it needs to be changed. 
and it must be changed. Going to page four, once again, re-emphasizing the fact modern-day prophets have clearly promised that homosexuality can be changed. Well, it sounds like from more recent statements by church leaders that they are starting to come to grips with the idea that homosexuality cannot be changed. So if this document in 1981 says modern-day prophets have clearly promised that homosexuality can be changed, and church leaders in 2017 are coming around and saying that homosexuality cannot be changed, who's right and who's wrong? Will the real prophet please stand up? I think one good thing about this document is at least it says to priesthood leaders that they should keep information confidential. The individual should know that you will keep everything he says confidential, never discuss his problems with anyone without his permission. However, we're going to find out a little bit later in this document that there are certain caveats to that rule. You should also avoid labeling. Be careful not to label people homosexual. This both discourages them and tends to make them feel that they cannot solve their problems. This is an interesting little tidbit in this 1981 document because you will notice in the church that church leaders have a very difficult time calling homosexuals homosexuals. In fact, Elder Bednar is apparently not even aware that there are homosexual members in the church, which is why he said recently that there are no homosexual members in the church. Instead, church leaders talk about same-sex attraction and usually coupled with the verb of struggling with. That is what we hear so frequently from leaders of the church is that homosexuals suffer from same-sex attraction or that homosexuals struggle with same-sex attraction. It does appear that they continue with this policy. They don't want to call homosexuals homosexuals because they don't want to discourage them and they don't want to make them feel that they cannot solve their problems. What problems? Why, the problem of homosexuality. It's also interesting in this regard that in the recent face-to-face -face devotional with Elder Oaks and Elder Ballard with the Young Single Adults last month, that Elder Oaks talks about this and he says to try and avoid labeling each other. We shouldn't label each other as this or that. And he doesn't actually come out and say it, but it's really clear what he's talking about. He's saying, don't label yourself as lesbian. Don't label yourself as gay. Don't label yourself as bisexual. Don't label yourself as transgender. And don't label yourself as queer. Don't label yourself as either LGBT or Q. The only label that's important, he says, is that you are a child of God. Now, one might think that Elder Oaks really probably would not have a problem with someone labeling themselves as straight or with someone labeling themselves as heterosexual, but rather what he doesn't want is for people to label themselves as homosexual. And I think we can see the roots of that here in this 1981 document. That policy appears to be alive and well in the LDS Church. Further along in this document, it says to provide hope for the despairing. Now this is interesting because it acknowledges the fact that members, and I'm quoting now, members with homosexual problems often feel trapped and alone and believe that change is impossible. Well, maybe that's because they've tried to change. They can't change in spite of all they do, all the praying, all the fasting, all the reading scriptures, all the attending church, doing everything that they possibly can, they cannot change. And that's why they feel trapped and alone. This document tells priesthood leaders, you should give them hope. The Lord loves them and will give them power to conquer the problem if they follow the steps leading to repentance and change. There are many who have overcome the problem through repentance, prayer, a diligent program of self-mastery, and the concern of others. So once again, they're going to say that there are many who have overcome this problem of homosexuality. And the more they say that many have overcome this problem of homosexuality, the more despair they're going to give to homosexuals 
who cannot overcome the problem of homosexuality because they were born that way. Can I stop here for just a second and tell you a personal story that really helped open my eyes on the subject of homosexuality? I was baptized right out of high school. I went on a two-year mission to Japan. Upon coming back, I went to college, and I was a dance major. So I associated with all the people in the drama department, all the people in the dance department. Both departments were together in this one building, and believe it or not, there were a lot of gay guys that were in the department. I was not one of them, but I had an association with a lot of gay guys. And believe it or not, we got along pretty well. One of the gay guys who was there, his name was Maurice. His last name was actually Dancer. He was a dancer. His last name was Dancer. He was Maurice Dancer. He was a tall, live, wonderful young man with a brilliant smile. Everybody loved him. Everybody loved Maurice. He was so nice to everybody. We had a friendship. And I remember one day sitting down with him and having a personal conversation with him because I was confused. Here's Maurice Dancer. He's this wonderful guy. He's great. Everybody loves him. But he's homosexual. How can these two things go together? Isn't he a terrible sinner? And I sat down with him and we had a private conversation and I asked him, Maurice, how is it that you can be homosexual? I don't understand. And bless his heart, he was very patient with me. He was very kind. He was very understanding. And he said to me, well, you like girls, don't you? And I said, yes, I sure do. And he said, well, if someone asked you to like boys, would you be able to like boys? And I thought about it for half a second and I said, no. And he said, well, it's the same way with me, only reversed. And it was at that moment that the scales began to fall from my eyes on the subject of homosexuality. I had a lot of growing left to do, but that was the first time when I started being able to see things from the other perspective, when I was able to put the shoe on the other foot and to realize that homosexuals can't become heterosexual any more than I could become homosexual. It wasn't a matter of choice. There was no way I could choose to suddenly like guys. And here's Maurice telling me that it's the same for him. And he told it to me so honestly and so kindly and yes, so lovingly that I understood that what he was telling me was the absolute truth. At least it was his truth. And I've come to understand since then that it is the truth for the vast majority, if not all, homosexuals. Just as it's the truth for the vast majority, if not all, heterosexuals. But going back to the problem of despair, this document says despair prompts feelings of hopelessness and hopelessness combined with the burden of unresolved sin and guilt may lead an individual to contemplate or attempt suicide. So this document recognizes, and I'm sure it's because it had happened even before 1981, that this issue of homosexuality can cause despair and lead to contemplation or the attempting of suicide, and certainly even the completion of the attempt of suicide. So the fundamental problem I see with this is that even though this document recognizes that homosexual members of the church can suffer despair which can lead them to suicide, the reason for the despair that they see is that the homosexual does not realize that he can change his homosexuality to heterosexuality. But the reality of the situation as I see it is that the real reason that so many Mormon homosexuals were despairing and that despair led them to suicidal ideation is not because they didn't know it could be changed. It's because they were told it could be changed and it must be changed, but they were completely incapable of changing it. That's what led to the despair. That's what led to the guilt. That's what led to the shame. And that's what led to the suicide. And that's what continues to lead to the suicide of homosexual youth 
in the church even in 2017. So the church recognized it as a problem in 1981, but what they did was they completely misdiagnosed the reason for the problem. And it continues to be a problem today, and largely because of the same reason, that the church refuses to correctly diagnose the reason for it and to publicly make statements that say it cannot be changed, God loves you the way you are, and you are acceptable to God. He did not make a mistake when he made you homosexual any more than he made a mistake when he made me heterosexual. And that problem is not made any better by recent statements by church leaders, such as Elder Ballard, that homosexual members of the church should be made to feel welcome in the church. Saying that homosexuals should be made welcome in the church does nothing to address the policies of the church that make the church the last place in the world that homosexuals would feel welcome. The church leaders have to do more than simply spout platitudes. They have to make fundamental changes in church policy so that homosexual members can and will feel welcome at church. The document goes on for a number of pages. Much of it is quite repetitive. I don't want to get repetitive in this podcast, but it goes on to quote from Spencer W. Kimball who was president of the church at that time. And this is one of the other problems with this document. It's not Spencer Kimball talking as an apostle. It's President Kimball talking as the prophet, the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And in 1978, in a publication that he made called A Letter to a Friend, he is quoted as saying, If the battle is well organized and pursued vigorously and continuously, homosexuality can be cured. So a prophet of God, speaking as a prophet of God in 1978, says homosexuality can be cured, and church leaders today are tending to start saying the opposite. Who is right? Who is wrong? Which is the real prophet? And which is not? Now this document goes on to describe what a person who is homosexual should do in order to stop being homosexual. This is divided into several different kinds of goals. The first are spiritual goals. Have him meet with his priesthood leader weekly to report progress and receive guidance. So weekly meetings with priesthood leaders. Assign him to read the scriptures and pray daily. Encourage him to be conscientious about attending his church meetings. So you read your scriptures, you go to church. Now ask him to read President Kimball's book, The Miracle of Forgiveness. So once again, citing to President Kimball for authority on the subject of homosexuality. Not only that homosexuals are not born with it, but that it can be changed and must be changed. Encourage him to fast and pray for strength and guidance to overcome his problem. Have him write a positive statement about himself based on his strengths. Then have him memorize this statement and repeat it to himself a specified number of times each day so that he can brainwash himself into not being homosexual. Encourage him to get involved in a service project. Oh, and we wouldn't want to forget to encourage him to pay a full tithing and a generous fast offering because paying tithing will help you not be gay anymore. So basically, read the scriptures, go to church, read the miracle of forgiveness, fast and pray, memorize a statement and repeat it to yourself, do service for others, pay a full tithing and a generous fast offering, and these are the spiritual goals that will transform a homosexual young man into a heterosexual young man. Not only must the young homosexual engage in these spiritual goals, He should also engage in social goals. What are those social goals? Well, he should be encouraged to be in appropriate situations with members of the opposite sex, even if he has to force himself. I'm not kidding. That's what it says. Even if he has to force himself. Encourage him to begin dating and gradually increase its frequency. So the idea behind this is, if you're a homosexual young man, 
Just start dating girls, even if you have to force yourself, even if it's repulsive to you. Just keep dating girls and eventually you'll start to see what a good thing you've been missing, that girls are really what you should be attracted to, and ultimately you'll date, get engaged, and marry one of these young women in the temple so that then you will be a closet homosexual pretending that you're heterosexual because that's what you're supposed to be, and then you and your wife will have a number of children and ultimately you'll realize that you can't live this false life anymore and you have to come out as homosexual and then your marriage breaks apart and your children are left in a broken home. This is what this kind of policy has led to time and time again in the LDS church. Now this document does not say get married to a girl if you're homosexual. That has been said many times by bishops in personal interviews and personal counseling sessions, but what it does say is everything leading up to it which is to begin dating and gradually increase its frequency, even if it's repulsive to you, even if you have to force yourself, and ultimately, nature will just take its course. Unfortunately, that's nature taking its course only if homosexuality is a choice and not if you're born that way. In addition to spiritual goals and social goals are physical goals. A physical fitness program will help the individual build self-control and improve his psychological outlook. Things such as daily physical fitness programs, jogging, bicycling, or some other regular exercise that can be measured as fitness increases are recommended. The word of wisdom should be involved. You should have proper nutrition and diet. Dress appropriately. Keep yourself well-groomed and clean. And all of these things will help make a gay young man straight as an arrow. And finally, under physical goals, help him to eliminate masturbation. Yes, this is a recurring theme that's going to get its own section here shortly. Self-discipline goals. One method is to replace the negative or inappropriate thoughts, those would be homosexual thoughts, with a pre-chosen scripture, positive statement, or the words of a hymn. And yes, this is citing to the pamphlet Two Young Men Only by Elder Boyd K. Packer. That's the Little Factory's talk. In which he said that the mind is like a stage on which only one player and one scene can be played at any time. And if something bad is happening on that stage, such as homosexual thoughts, you can choose to run that bad thought off the stage and into the wings by intentionally placing a good thought on the stage, such as a scripture, a positive statement, or the words of a hymn. But as somebody once said some time ago, when they tried this method of getting bad thoughts off their stage, the only problem was that the people on the stage began to do it to the music of the hymn. Finally, on page six, we come to the section, Overcoming Masturbation. Masturbation is a sin, but is not homosexuality when practiced alone. Well, that's good to know. When individuals of the same sex masturbate each other, it is a homosexual act. Now for the money quote. Self-masturbation is almost universal among those who engage in homosexual behavior. Well, here's a news flash for you. Self-masturbation is almost universal among those who engage in heterosexual behavior. Then this document goes on to talk about how to overcome masturbation. And there's an entire program for overcoming masturbation. And not surprisingly, it is quite similar to the program of overcoming homosexuality. The only thing it does not contain is Mark E. Peterson's suggestion that when you go to bed at night, you tie the offending hand to the bedpost so that you are physically incapable of masturbating under the covers. And no, I'm not making that up. It is a strange thing that the position of the church, as put forth in this official document, is that masturbation leads to homosexuality. If that were true, one would expect that the percentage of homosexuals in the population would be somewhat higher than they are. In fact, pretty much every guy on earth would be homosexual. And that alone, I think, disproves 
conclusively the idea that masturbation leads to homosexuality. I'm almost to the end of this document. There are nine pages. I'm on page eight right now. On page eight, under this section, Activity in the Church, it states, The member who has repented of homosexual problems can receive strength from serving in safe callings. Now that safe is in quotation marks. So if there's a homosexual member of the church and is repented of being a homosexual, he can serve in safe church callings. Assignments should never place him in a position of temptation. A man previously involved with young boys or a woman with young girls should not be used in youth programs. Well now, all of a sudden it seems to have shifted from talking about homosexuals to talking about pedophiles. And this shift suggests that the church equates homosexuality with pedophilia. Not only that, I think it's pretty clear that anybody who has ever been a pedophile should never be allowed to be in a supervisory role with young people in church or outside of church. But that does not seem to be the position of the church in this document. And as alarming as this is regarding to homosexuality, it is perhaps equally as alarming with regards to its position on pedophilia. Once again, it says, a man previously involved with young boys, i.e. a pedophile, or a woman with young girls, i.e. a pedophile, should not be used in youth programs. Well, that makes sense, but it goes on to say that that restriction should apply only so long as they have not repented of their pedophilia, which again is equated with homosexuality here, but it's obvious they're talking about pedophilia. It goes on to say, common sense and wisdom will help you determine appropriate assignments. Well, hopefully it's away from children, and hopefully it's supervised by an adult who is aware of the pedophilia to make sure that that person is never alone with a child. The length of time from the last incident of misbehavior is an important factor. A return too soon to full activity in the church mocks the process of repentance. Too long a delay can deprive a person of healing blessings. This is a matter for inspired judgment. So if I am understanding this correctly, not only does it talk about homosexuality as something that has to be repented of, it talks about pedophilia as something that can be repented of, and a person after repenting of pedophilia can come to a place where they can return to full activity, and apparently, if their repentance has been deemed to be successful, can be given callings in which they might have been tempted before, but in which they will no longer be tempted because they have repented. In other words, this manual appears to say that it is all right to put pedophiles in charge of nursery, in charge of primary, in charge of young men and young women, if enough time has gone by for the priesthood authority to believe they have fully and sufficiently repented. This is a recipe for disaster, not to mention lawsuits. Now we get to this part on page 8, which I referred to earlier. Remember when I was saying that a person's homosexuality and talking with their bishop or church leader should be kept strictly confidential and that there are certain caveats to this? Now we get to the caveat. It has to do with the subsection on page 8 called Involvement of Others. Listen to this one. Since homosexual behavior is possible only with others, Oh, that's right. We were already told that if you're masturbating yourself, it's not homosexual behavior. Therefore, homosexual behavior is possible only with others. The individual should disclose his sexual partners as an essential part of repentance. Did you hear what that said? As part of repentance, a homosexual member has to disclose his sexual partners. Obviously, he has to have them. Otherwise, he would not be engaging in homosexual behavior. So as part of repentance... 
as part of being accepted once again into the church, a homosexual who has engaged in homosexual behavior must disclose his sexual partners. The purpose is to help save others. Well, that's how this church document puts it. It's to help save others. It seems it's pretty obvious to help out others and to help put them through the same process of repentance, which will lead to despair, which may or may not lead to suicidal ideation. The leader to whom the names are disclosed should refer the names to the individual's priesthood leaders for follow-up action. So if you're a homosexual member, you're in the bishop's office, you're talking about homosexual behavior as part of your repentance process, now in order to complete that repentance process, you've got to tell me, the bishop, who it is that your homosexual partners are, so I can then call the bishop in that person's ward, tell them so that that bishop can call that person in and talk to him about being a homosexual and institute the repentance procedure with them. Can you say inquisition? And finally, on the last page, it concludes with testimonies from those who have changed. Now, no names are mentioned, no full documents are included, just quotes from several documents that are alleged to be from members who were homosexual who have now stopped being homosexual because they have successfully repented of being a homosexual. And call me suspicious, but when I read these quotes from letters from people who say that they have overcome homosexuality, the language in them sounds remarkably like the rest of the language in the document. In other words, the entire document sounds like it was written by a committee of lawyers, and the quotes from these people who are giving their testimonies Sounds pretty much the same. Here's what it says. Many written testimonies have been gathered from individuals who have overcome homosexual problems and found peace and success in dating, marriage, see, marriage, dating and marriage are solutions to homosexuality, and church activity. In these testimonies, members speak without exception of their deep sense of having sinned. One individual said, finally, I became aware very strongly and I'm sure it was the Holy Ghost bearing witness to me that what was being done in my life was abhorred in the sight of the Lord. So why on earth would any Mormon homosexual feel guilt, shame, and despair? Beats me. Another testimony. Finally, I feel that the Lord has answered my prayers now that I have fully repented of my sins. I wonder how many of his homosexual partners he had to throw under the bus. The happiness now is really beyond description. I never knew anyone could be so happy. It is just like a light in the dark that continues to increase in brilliance. I find that troubling. I find it sad. Because I believe it is most likely that this person is still homosexual. They know they're still homosexual. They did not change from being homosexual. And therefore, they're trying to overcompensate in how wonderful it is to not be homosexual anymore. The happiness now is really beyond description. I never knew anyone could be so happy. Yeah, that person's not struggling with depression. Another testimony quoted says, I became deeply involved, but I have been totally cured. Totally. Over a long period, with some success and occasional slips, I have finally become the master, the master of my domain. My so-called friends tried to convince me it could not be done, but I know now it can. The document goes on to quote not only recovered, quote-unquote, homosexuals, but also quotes several women who find out all of a sudden that their husbands are homosexuals. How on earth could that happen with such frequency in the church? One wonders, probably because their bishops told them to date women, even if they didn't want to, to continue dating women, to date more and more women, 
and finally to get married in the temple, and then their homosexuality would be cured. And then when it's not, all of a sudden, the homosexual is out of the closet, and the wife is shocked to find out that her husband is homosexual. That's why I think we have so many women and wives being quoted in this testimony section on page 9. One wife, describing her efforts to assist her husband, said, We have gained much courage and strength from President Kimball's book, The Miracle of Forgiveness, and from the beautiful talks that he gives. Unquote. The document then says many people refer to President Kimball's counsel and writings as a turning point in their lives. Further on, another wife is quoted with this introduction. A special challenge comes when a wife discovers her husband has been involved in homosexual activities. One wife said, My first reaction was disbelief. My mind did not comprehend it. The full impact of it came gradually over the next few days and weeks. Quoting another wife, I thought maybe I would be better off if I just left, but I couldn't do this. And I found that if I would search the scriptures, if I would turn to my Heavenly Father, that I could find peace. This document concludes by saying, Repentant members and those who counsel with them succeed only to the extent that they have the Spirit of the Lord. Those who truly overcome homosexual activity do not seek mild adaption or limited change. They seek complete change, total repentance, and acceptance before God. See, if you don't change from being a homosexual, you are not accepted by God. Homosexuals are not accepted by God. Throughout this document are all the seeds of why it is that homosexual members of the church feel not accepted by God, they feel not loved by God, they feel inferior, and when they find out they cannot change their homosexual behavior in order to please God, they can feel completely depressed, they can despair, and they can start to engage in suicidal ideation, and God forbid, as it's happened before, it's happening now, and will continue to happen in the future if the church doesn't change its position on this issue, they will commit suicide. In conclusion, I want to suggest a few things to the church that you can do right now to stop getting black eyes like you're getting from the release of this document from 1981. Number one, become transparent. Don't try to become transparent. Don't be as transparent as you know how to be. Don't try to be more transparent. Become completely transparent. Put all these documents up publicly, on your website. Don't hide them. Don't wish they would go away. Put them out there for everybody to see. You'll take a couple of lumps for it, but you'll get them over with quickly, and you will get credit for being the ones who put it out there instead of having these documents leaked by other people like Mormon leaks. Second, go on record publicly as disavowing these past teachings. Say they were wrong. I don't care who said it. I don't care that it's in a first presidency letter. I don't care that it was said by a president of the church. Go on record as saying, these things were said. These things are wrong. We do not believe them anymore. We have changed. If you do both of those things, you will stop getting a black eye by the release of documents like this. And you can avoid it happening again and again in the future which is what I guarantee you is going to happen if you don't follow this advice. And please, please, most important of all, for God's sake, tell members of the church publicly, tell them in general conference, tell them long and loud and over and over again that homosexuals are homosexuals not because they chose to be homosexuals, but because they were born that way, because God made them that way, that it is not a sin, that it is not something that needs to be cured, that it is not something that can be changed, and it is not something 
That should be changed. And for God's sake, get rid of the November 2015 policy that says that children with a homosexual parent cannot receive a blessing as a baby, cannot be baptized in the church, cannot receive the priesthood if it's a boy, cannot go on a mission, and cannot receive any of those ordinances until and unless they turn 18, they move out of the home, they renounce their parents' homosexual lifestyle, and they get special permission from the First Presidency of the Church. Get rid of that. I don't care that President Nelson said it was a revelation in January of 2016. Get rid of it. Get rid of it now. Get rid of it publicly. And if you do all these things, not only will you prevent yourself from having a black eye, not only will you be being transparent, not only will you be doing what Jesus wants you to do, as Elder Ballard said recently, you will be preventing your own members from committing suicide. Because in spite of the fact that this document is from 1981 and it's 36 years old, the same teachings, the same positions, the same doctrines are largely in effect today in the LDS Church. And that is the most important reason you should do this. And until the LDS Church does exactly what I have outlined here, it will continue to be haunted by the ghost of homophobia past. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.